Sound of Play 18. With Sound of Play, we bring you an eclectic fortnightly compilation of some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the years. And joining me, Leon Cox, in this Sound of Play, we have Darren Gargett. Hmm, hello. And James Carter. How do you do, D? And we've just heard from Hirokazu Tanaka. Uh, not Koji Kondo, no. Um, because this was the 1989... Game Boy launch game, although I don't, was it, it might have, was it a pack-in game? I can't remember. Was Tetris a pack-in game? Did it, it come with a pack-in game? There was definitely a pack-in version of Mario with the Game Boy at some point, whether it sure. was on day one or not, I'm not too sure, but there was definitely a yeah. big box with Mario's face on it. Yeah. <laughs> so that, yes, 1989, that very large, uh, whitish, soon-to-be yellowish uh, <laughs> handheld console that took four double A's at that point, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. had a contrast button, which was, which turned it from, pure lcd crystal gray to pure invisible graphics yellow yeah. um it had stereo <laughs> sound but only if you put the headphones in but wow what a machine that was you know nintendo's uh, another of nintendo's console phenomenons and uh, that track bit of buto kingdom um is probably the signature track for handheld mario and a lot of people like uh, baron phil who requested that from from the forum, he said, the first Mario game I played and played and played and played after getting my Game Boy for Christmas. This is still the first music I think of when I think of Mario. So not, you know, not the Koji Kondo mm. Super Mario theme, but but that theme. James, uh, I believe this was your first Mario as well. It was, yeah. Um, it's weird. We'd had video games in the house before, had ZX Spectrum, Commodore 64, but when I got a Game Boy, it was the first one that felt like it was mine. Because uh, the others were kind of, I mean... I think the ZX Spectrum, myself and my brother got joint for Christmas, but this one was just mine, the Game Boy. And because it's a handheld, it feels a more personal experience because it's not mm. in the living room or anything, you know, hooked up to the family TV. Not shared. And, uh, With your scummy was... relatives. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, it was the, the, the first time, again, I was uh, eight, nine years old at this point. And uh, it felt like it was the first time I really took charge of uh, my own game playing it wasn't just the 101 game collection that we had that i just picked yeah. something from it was games yeah. i actually chose to yes to buy myself save up for or, or ask for, for as presents um and so yeah it felt like it was my console and super mario and certainly felt like my mario uh, that and it's its sequel where I'd, I'd encountered mario games before i did a, a write-up on on the the site as well uh, just describing why so many of the things that are slightly different about super mario land are actually Mario to me in the way that they wouldn't mm. be for people who'd played uh, yes, the, the original uh, NES games first. So yeah. yeah, it's got some weird mechanics and different enemies, and and it's set in a different world. And, and yeah, uh, d- different. 
different characters in place of you know the usual. So yeah, Princess yeah. Peach not there and no no Bowser or anything. So yeah, Darren memories yeah. of Mario Land. Oh uh, yeah, this wasn't my first Mario. I had a NES before this, yeah. but I remember playing this on a friend's Game Boy. And it was, I think it was summertime and I was playing outside, fiddling with the contrast button to make sure I could see it properly <laughs> and just being completely uh, kind of confused by it. Cause it's not a traditional Mario game. You jump on the Coopers, they explode weird. And yeah. you, you know, he gets in a submarine and he, he does other things that he's never really done Shooting before. Level. Yeah, yeah. It was um, more like Turrican or something, which actually was, came after this. <laughs> it, it was bizarre. But when I hear that tune and I've heard, you know, heard it on the uh, on the show just now it reminds me of ambassadors of funk that that song uh, that was released in the 90s uh, even my ma she thinks i'm crazy but i've got to rescue daisy of course <laughs> daisy yeah and of course the ambassadors of funk i woke up unfortunately with uh with uh, dr spin which was uh, basically andrew lloyd webber and a pop producer uh, whose name escapes me um doing the uh korobeniki theme from tetris to a horrible uh, sort of late 80s, early 90s Euro beat. It was horrendous, and it, that was my earworm the other week. Um, I didn't get a Game Boy until 1996 when they released, latterly, this was seven years into the Game Boy's life, a, a pocket model which was smaller and took fewer batteries and, and so on and so forth. And that's when I got Super Mario Land and found that it was incredibly short, like really, really yeah. easy and really, really mm. short. Yeah. Um, compared to, you know, because by that stage I'd already finished... Uh, most of the other 2D Marios, um, you know, done all 96 exits on uh, mm. Super Mario World or whatever. And this was like falling off a log. Um, I was looking <laughs> earlier at the, um, the the world record speed run times and it's about 12 minutes. <laughs> it's wow. really, really quick. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, but no, I was times. surprised. I went back to it uh, last year um, on 3DS, I think. And uh, yeah, I, I thought, oh, I'll sit down with this and just make a start at it. It was like half an hour and I was done. And that's yeah. with nothing but very distant memories. Um, yeah. Still loved every second and loads of fond memories. But yeah, it's uh, surprising just how different it is from uh, f- from what I now think of as Mario. Yeah, uh, yeah. Always uh, towards the end or could to complete properly, incredibly testy. As we discussed in our long-running uh, uh, 2D Mario core series podcast, which you can find at canerince.com or, uh, and on iTunes, um, and we've uh, we've planned at some stage, and this might be a long, long way away, to mm. actually cover the kind of the Super Mario Land series, which then segues into Wario games. Mm-hmm. And we had a, another request recently to cover uh, the Wario Land games, which went from Game Boy to Game Boy Color to Game Boy Advance. Um, and then and that takes us into kind of Super Mario 3D Land as well, mm. which we didn't cover. And then there's a couple of Wario spin-off games. There's a, one by Treasure and one by Goodfeel. And we want to cover all these games, but um, but we've got some other stuff coming up in the meantime. But someday, someday. Darren, another uh, another Nintendo console pick from you, but uh, from, yeah, different machine, different time, totally different genre of music. What's this? Mm. Well, for, from Game Boy to you know, a, a relation to the Game Boy was, uh, you know, Tetris on the Game Boy was massive and uh, almost was. ubiquitous, you know, for, for the for the user base. But, Some people famously glued their Tetris carts into their Game Boy <laughs> consoles because that was all it was for. Really? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's nuts. Well, it was probably the complete <laughs> opposite for the N64 and Tetris Sphere because I think I was probably the only person in the world to play this uh, for more than a day. Um, I really yeah. like Tetris Sphere. Right. Has anyone else played it? I'm, I've played it briefly. 
Um, I have a friend, uh, Pete. I don't, I don't think he listens to Sound of Play, but um, shout out to Pete if he does. But me and him used to play every puzzle game. Mm. Um, he used to. He he's a particularly. Um, he was obsessed with Japanese puzzlers in in particular, um, and he just used to hoover them up from the SNES era onwards. Um, on even on the PlayStation, he'd buy things like there was a game. Uh, do you remember the Midas Pocket Money label that mm. um, that had Chris Kamara Street Soccer on it? Yeah. Well, that they imported a game called Star Sweep, which was a Japanese puzzler, and and we even played that for a while. But the Tetris I really remember from the N sixty four was the new Tetris yeah. from nineteen ninety nine, which was an, a, a really excellent um, spin <laughs> on the on the um, <laughs> on the uh, Tetris formula. But tell me more about Tetrisphere, Darren, because I, I have virtually no memory of it other than it wasn't terribly well reviewed. Mm, you know, uh, it was it was a weird one for me because I played it in like most games that I discovered uh, back in the nineties. It was through working in the shop and just plugging in any old random stuff into the N sixty four PlayStation Saturn and seeing what you know what worked and what didn't for me. What stuck? Uh, yeah, and Tetrisphere was a weird one because it is literally Tetris on a sphere, and you kind of have to. I can't even begin to explain how it's played because when I was playing it, I wasn't really too sure of how I was playing it. As long as the lines were clearing and I was getting to the core of the sphere, I was progressing, but I wasn't really too sure how. And I think that's why it's not regarded as one of the classic entries in the Tetris uh, canon, probably, because it's quite quite murky, isn't it? it, Yeah, well, it's an N64 game, so yeah. Not not like that. I'm only joking. Um, But yeah, it's a confusing Tetris game, but one that sort of took over, you know, from, from my working days just just as something to do but the music for me was what kept me coming back to this because it felt like it was the first n64 game to sort of use cd-esque sounding music it, it sounds like yeah. it's from wipeout 2097 it's got that weird 90s prodigy chemical brothers electro aggressive but also light-hearted um attitude to it and yeah. it's, it kind of feels like an imitation of the prodigy and chemical brothers which is probably why i like the soundtrack probably more than the game and uh, this track in particular has kind of like the industrial sort of aggression of the Prodigy, sort of, and kind of like the light and airy melodies of Chemical Brothers, sort of. So when you put them together, even though it's kind of a botched job of two, it kind of makes its own unique copycat. It's quite weird to explain, but yeah, have a listen. And um, yeah, the, the other tracks are just as good, but this is the one that really stuck out for me.
Prophetic by Neil Voss. So Neil Voss, um, reading up on his bio, because honestly, I'd never heard of him. Uh, he was a, a Commodore 64 musician, but not one who had any work published. He was a, like a young prodigy. I guess some of his work probably found its way out there on, you know, on the demo scene maybe or, or something mm. like that. But uh, a lot of his peers, um, you know, got jobs in the industry and, uh, and eventually he, he got a gig with uh, H2O. Um, uh, who were developing for the Jaguar at the time, the, the failed Atari Jaguar. But um, Tetrisphere, I think, was his first his first published work. Um, but yeah, it's again, we mention this every time we have an N64 track on here, but that console, as I understand it, had no dedicated sound hardware whatsoever. And so to hear stuff like that on it is is pretty impressive. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what, um, what devilry allows such things, hmm. but... Uh, impressive stuff i'm just also i'm I'm reading up on him now and it says mm. that he actually composed tracks for the new tetris as well for the n64 so Ah. i'm actually quite curious to check out that soundtrack as well because if it sounds like being good Mm. yeah i remember that being i remember it being atmospheric um very much like tetrisphere well that's it there's a there's a history of tetris games being atmospheric because although we associate it with you know that famous the piece we've already talked about from Russian folk music that was turned into a disco hit and so on and so forth. But the famously, like the Commodore 64 version of Tetris, um, which in some ways wasn't a stellar port, had like this amazing 24-minute sort of symphony, uh, electronica symphony that went with it and, um, and you know, really captivated people's imaginations back in 80-whatever that was. before This was, bef- you know, 87 or something before the Game Boy version even existed. So it makes sense that, you know, Puzzle games with atmospheric soundtracks. I think of um, Bejeweled, recent Bejeweled games as well. Mm. They've mm. got some tremendous music that really, um, you know, keeps you keeps you in the mode. And even you know, even if you you think about what you're doing is quite mundane, you know, pattern creation, block shifting, matching tiles, and whatever. But this sense that you're in some kind of like you know crystal maze type mm. of environment or whatever. I think it. I think it's quite important to um, kind of. Yeah, or either that, or with puzzle games, or you get the um, you know the sort of uh, you know pachinko parlor uh, tinkly winkly jingle type stuff, <laughs> um, which also can you know do a job, fill a hole, and all that. Mm. Anyway, thanks for that, Darren. That was a, a good left field pick. Uh, as is this from James. <laughs> I needed to uh, step up my game after last time, where I, I felt like I was picking rather obvious choices. It's okay if they're good. <laughs> we want to hear them, but but this is definitely not an obvious choice. See, this probably goes to show what I was saying about the Game Boy being a a console for which I got to choose the games. Um, I mean, in in many ways it worked out with Bure Fighter Deluxe or Burei Fighter Deluxe. Um, But looking back at it now, um, it's not a great game by any stretch of the imagination. It's a very simplistic side-scrolling shooter. Uh, I think at different points it does scroll in all sort of four... Uh, cardinal directions um but um but yeah it's a it's a relatively straightforward uh game that the the reason i was attracted to it as i guess an eight or nine year old child uh would be Hmm. um was a a space marine in a jetpack shooting at a rather large impressive serpent on the front of the box um it looks like uh the the box art makes it look like you're going to get space harrier or something basically yeah yeah yeah. Uh, you don't Um, but no, it's it's a very slow-paced 
uh, shooter and, and not anything remotely a- approaching what I would find necessarily fun from a shooter now. You know, it's, it's not bullet hell. It's not particularly challenging, although I seem to remember feeling it was back then. Um, well, the and, Game Boy was very limited in its yeah, number of sprites yeah. on screen and the speed it could scroll Definitely. at and things like that. And yeah, obviously yeah. They, had to, they had to take into account the screen size and so on and so forth, so... Yeah, early yeah. steps for for good handheld but, games. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it was definitely um, very slow paced, and and yeah, there were only ever a couple of uh, enemies usually that were, or often that were turrets uh, on screen at the same time, and they were only ever shooting. I think there was only ever a couple of bullets at once to dodge. It was really quite yeah, simplistic, yeah. and you were more hamstrung by uh, stuff appearing at difficult angles for you to shoot it without getting hit yourself uh, at the edges of the screens and behind little pillars and stuff. Um, but as you say, they probably did uh, did the best they could with the Game Boy hardware. But I certainly uh, it it didn't bother me uh, that, that even at the time it wasn't a fantastic game. Um, so this was originally Bury Fighter on the on the NES in 1990, but was ported to the uh, the the Game Boy basically immediately thereafter, mm. uh, roughly the same sort of time. And it was a slightly sort of pared down version. Instead of seven levels, there were five. Um, music was was the same, um, albeit through the, the Game Boy sound chip. Um, but yeah, the, I was looking uh, recently back at it, and um, it's got this really strange history. The company that that developed this, Taxan, mm. um, are actually they were for a time at least. Uh, they, created in 1981, but for a time operated from Bracknell as a monitor manufacturer <laughs> and had this weird period where between 1989 and 1991, they made uh, sort of a dozen or so NES and Game Boy games. Um, just the bizarrest thing. And um, a Fist of the North Star game in 1989, Star Soldier, a G.I. Joe game in 1991, um, very little else that would be uh, familiar, and, and those names are only familiar because they pertain to other things mm. uh, rather than the games themselves being memorable. Um, yeah, and, and then after 1991, they went on to be a, an import-export company uh, dealing in power supplies and PC peripherals, just this really odd situation yeah. where they made a game and they self-published it everywhere uh, apart from Japan and Australia. Um, it was a title published game in Japan, uh, much more familiar name uh, for this sort of game. Um, yeah. And yeah, the, uh, the the Game Boy port was handled by another uh, strange company who were called Kindle Imagine Develop, uh, who existed from 1988 to 2006 and basically did... Uh, Invented port, the Kindle. development. Invented no. the Kindle. <laughs> they wouldn't. They wouldn't have uh, ceased in two thousand six had they had they no, done good that. Point. But, um, yeah. but yeah, they just did ports uh, often of NES games to, to Game Boy, um, and were associated with. Uh, apologies for pronunciation. Bishoju Gemu, which is uh, a, a subset of dating games, which uh, obviously very mm-hmm. Japanese specific. But yeah, did a lot of porting and, and that sort of stuff. Um, the game we're talking about, Bury Fighter Deluxe, uh, was actually released, uh, again developed by them on the Game Boy Color as Space Marauder um, some mm. some six or seven years later. Um, and, and at that point was seen as quite a, a nice throwback to old old yeah. shooters of the time, which I guess it would have been by then. So, um, yeah. But yeah, really simple game. But uh, as always with these things, and as we said, with games like Mario, often the sort of stage one music... Um, 
is is what sticks with you. And and sure enough, when I fire fire up any videos of of this, uh, unfortunately, I don't I don't still have the game or or that Game Boy. Um, the the music very simple, nothing nothing uh, notable about it aside from it just wriggled into my head just through virtue of of playing the uh, the game lots, but. Um, yeah, very fond memories of this by uh, Norio Nakagata again, uh, a guy who who has some significant credits in in video game music, but nothing nothing that certainly I recognise much. Just a, a reasonable number of them around that sort of time, nineteen eighty five through to uh, sort of mid nineties. Um, but yeah, yeah, th- this piece of music I thought it would be interesting to talk about the uh, the game and uh, and to hear one more time this piece of music that kind of defined for me aside from Tetris and Mario uh, the, the Game Boy, uh, as odd as that might seem. <laughs> the name off the top of my head, Norio Nakagata, but looking at his uh, CV um, with my uh, slightly more aged head on, um, <laughs> the RBI baseball games were, were pretty big hits in Japan, as they tended to be. But mm. the game I know uh, as much as anything, or the games are, his, his first game was Baraduke um, for Namco at the arcade. And I must admit, I don't remember the uh, the music for that, but um, but that was a game. It was also a, a sort of scrolly shooter with a jetpack man and... Mm. Um, uh, came in the mid-80s and arrived on uh, the Namco Museum compilations on the PlayStation in the mid-90s. So there's that. I th- what I really like about that track is that it's uh, it sounds like a sort of pastiche of a video game piece of music. It's so <laughs> yeah. much of a, of a cliche. It sounds yeah. like something that... Um, uh, Suda51 would have had in one of his games as a kind of deliberate retro throwback to yeah, a certain yeah. kind of sound and uh, and that's why that's why I like it so much it's just generically uh, redolent of video games from the from the 80s yeah, and no, 90s absolutely. it's very of, very of that moment absolutely yeah. and sounds very much like a Game Boy game which obviously it is unlike this next selection <laughs> uh, which is about as far at the other end of the spectrum as you can imagine um, mm-hmm. 
albeit you know this was still in the 90s just about 1999 uh, and the much anticipated final fantasy 8 a couple of years after final fantasy 7 had uh, sold a lot of copies and then had a lot of copies traded in by mystified mainstream type people <laughs> who had never played a jrpg before and didn't understand uh i you know i say that it's so easy to get into that and sort of start sounding like a kind of uh, casual sort of you know elitist gaming mm. snob but literally I have friends and I had friends then who got Final Fantasy 7 for Christmas 1997 or some point early next year and they traded it in within weeks because they you know they'd read all these previews they'd seen the graphics they they and and but they were completely nonplussed by turn-based combat and materia gathering and all that sort of thing. Obviously, I also know loads of people who adored the game and who are, uh, as we record this show, we've, we've just heard that there is going to be an actual remake of Final Fantasy VII. People are excited. Um, there's also, you know, we're also still awaiting the, the, the nice straight port of the PC version to console. I'm glad that's still happening because I think it's important that both both uh, versions come out. Um mm. I really enjoyed Final Fantasy VII, and I was excited about Final Fantasy VIII. Um, as it turns out, I've never played more than about five, six hours of Final Fantasy VIII, um, even though I've owned it, you know, on and off ever since. But they gave away a demo on the front of a magazine, probably the official PlayStation magazine, which included the uh, the CG intro and this track, mm. Liberi Fatali by uh, Uematsu. And I must have watched this intro in my life about... 60 70 times or something i don't know i've I've just lost count it's for me it was just the most staggering piece of cg uh combined with the most Mm. enthralling soundtrack i'd ever seen and this was an era where uh we're going to hear from another one later where cg intros were something that was you know just coming to you know exploding in uh, as a thing as it was actually part of the gaming experience when you put when you got a new playstation game home was to see hopefully the people had created like a, an outstanding CG intro with a, with some kind of choreographed soundtrack and, and all this. But this one, I, you know, I knew nothing about the characters. As it turned out, you know, the game didn't hook me for whatever reason. But the the scene set by this intro and the, the combat between the two guys, Squall and the other guy whose name I can't even remember... Um, it just all looks so promising and tantalizing. It was so ridiculously dramatic. It actually, you know, it moistened my eyes every time I watched it, even though I didn't really know what was going on. It's just such a riot of imagery with the black and the white feathers and the lightning and the, ah, just uh, astonishing. But I think even without the CG, uh, this stands alone as an astonishing uh, composition by uh, Uematsu. So uh, please enjoy.
goodness me. Still got it, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, for me, anyway. It still makes me want to actually play Final Fantasy VIII, whether that'll ever happen or not. Maybe for the podcast, if we get through the other seven first. Mm. Right, request time from the forum, com slash forum. Don't forget... Uh, we always include a selection of tracks from uh, from you lot requesting stuff in every show, which uh, helps give us, uh, you know, an even more interesting uh, spread and variety of tracks from different eras and so on. Sean S. Thomas is taking us back to Amiga times uh, and an Amiga game. This is the Amiga version of a track by uh, Scottish composer Barry Leitch uh, for Lotus Turbo Challenge 2 by Magnetic Fields. Uh, Sean says, when I first got my Amiga, I was so blown away by the sound capabilities, having previously only owned a Master System and Atari 2600, that I spent many, many hours listening to intro music for the few games I had. This was one such game. I can't listen to that without thinking of we mentioned it recently on I think we mentioned it on the Silent Hill Downpour show the the most striking thing about Lotus 2 for me I don't know if either of you guys played Lotus 2 mm, might yeah. be yeah oh you did 
yeah. um, was the rain level. The, the rainy the yeah. rainy level was so memorable, was so atmospheric at the time. So, like, the first Lotus game came out a year or two before, and uh, it was great. It was like having a kind of almost, it felt like, it probably is, wasn't, but it felt like a sort of outrun quality mm, yeah. uh, game in your home. It was certainly, it had some pretty, you know, swizzy graphics and, mm. you know, very fast-paced uh, road tech and uh, hills and troughs and stuff that, that we hadn't seen done quite to this level and if anything lotus 2 i felt i didn't enjoy the game overall as much it was incredibly harsh um difficulty wise i think and and um had some odd uh design choices later where you had to collect certain things to boost and stuff i can't quite remember but it all went a bit wrong and there's a bit where you drive under a truck and yeah um Hmm. but but that rain level oh yeah that was that was good stuff darren what are your memories of lotus 2 i think that's why i enjoyed lotus 2 um, as a you know, as a whole game is because it had like weather effect, weather effects that yeah. Super Hang On didn't have, and we kind of got into. Um, it, it, I played this on the Mega Drive, and we kind of went into like mm. a Mega Drive split screen sort yeah. of obsession. We had like Skitchin and Road Rash and, <laughs> and this, and uh, it wasn't a split screen, but also is it Total Driving. It was like a weird sort of uh, sort of a simulator racing game. We go around loop the loops and stuff. Mm. Uh, hard, driving. Hard, hard driving. Sorry, Total yeah. Driving was a uh, a a uh, Utechnics PlayStation One game. There we go. Yes, yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah, it was kind of like it was kind of like a weird sort of era where kind of all the games were similar but different. If you know what I mean, like they've all got those like those super hang on style roads, and even like the, the version of Street Racer on the Mega Drive was was kind of similar, where it's like a single lane that bends left and right, and you mm. kind of fall out. Whereas the SNES version of Street Racer was more like Super Mario Kart. But yeah, the Mega Drive had its own sort of vibe for me anyway. In my experience, I didn't really play it on the Amiga because I didn't have one. But like the Mega Drive had this own sort of vibe of racing game, and yeah, this mm. fell in line with the, that those games purely because it had weather and like obstacles, like logs and stuff on the course. I think to remember did, that yeah. being quite um quite did a they unique throw you twist. Up in the air, or am I thinking of something? Uh, Buggy Boy. Buggy Boy was oh, an Buggy early. Boy. Uh, I thought about Buggy Boy for ages. Tremendous game. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Both the Commodore 64 and Amiga versions of Buggy Boy were, were mm. terrific. The, the Amiga version was closer to the coin-op, but the, the Commodore 64 version, everybody said, was like slightly more fun somehow. They just, you know, they just nailed the, the feel of the port. But uh, that's by the by. Uh, speaking of fun times and multiplayer gaming, uh, Darren's brought another one-minute-long piece of music. <laughs> this this uh, this particular sound of play is high on chatter, low on music. Sorry about that. But uh, as we said before recording, it's about quality, not quantity. Indeed. Um, I, I can't stop thinking about Buggy Boy now. I've, oh, that game was incredible. Anyway, this is an unsurprising track for me, if you know me, and you know if you listen to Kenimits for a while, you know our, the other podcast that we do. Um, this is the the initial opening track from Super Monkey Ball, the American version. I prefer the American version over the Japanese intro, but they have got, you know, their own merits. It's also but, the PAL version. Yeah, sorry, and the PAL version, yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. Um, I guess I specified the American one because it was imported first for me and yes. kind of went, so that's kind of in my brain as the way it is. But yeah, it's uh, it's short, it's uh, yeah, it's really, it's just really punchy and sweet and energetic, and I, when I was playing, when I was obsessed with Monkey Ball back in, you know, in the in the day, that was constantly on because I never wanted to turn the console off because I knew I was coming back to it soon. So you had it running in the background yeah. and the intro, the, you know, the track screen just kept looping over and over and over again. 
and it tempting just it, you. It, it gets it ingrains in your brain. It, it, like that tune, you can hear the like. I don't know what kind of noise it is, but it, it kind of sounds like whirring <laughs> air spinning around. I don't know what it is. <laughs> I can't. I can't explain noises. I know but, exactly yeah. what you mean, but yeah, I can't explain it or or mimic it either. So luckily, <laughs> we're going to hear it shortly. But yeah. indeed, but yeah, Super Monkey Boy is, is one of my all time favourites, and. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm always yearning for a HD remake of that game or a collection or mm. or, or like maybe Super Monkey Ball Deluxe coming mm-hmm. into HD. You know, I'm still waiting for it. Mm. And um, you know, the, the, we're, we're going to be playing Monkey Target soon. I hate to put a time frame on this. You can edit this out. That's but, fine. That's fine. Yeah, That's... we're gonna we're gonna get together and play some Monkey Target. And uh, I just I'm getting really excited about the thought of turning the GameCube on and hearing this music, and therefore the menu, and then the options music, and it all kind of loops into one another like it feeds into one another yeah and like my, a good arcade game should hmm yeah and this is a good arcade game Yes, it brings me back. We did actually play this a few years back, didn't we? We managed to get a few games going. Mm. And uh, I, I did have a period in the mid-2000s where uh, this was available in my the pub that I used to spend virtually every evening. <laughs> that was pretty awesome as well, on a big nice. screen on a wow. pub, pub wall. Um, composers for the game are Hidenori, Shoji, Sakai, Asumi, and Hariyoshi Tomita. I don't know. Again, it's the usual story. I don't know exactly uh, who wrote what, whether it was a you know collaboration between the three but um extra research may may dig that out for you if if you're interested but hey it's the super monkey ball soundtrack we covered all of the super monkey balls in one podcast thanks to mainly thanks to uh darren it was really uh ostensibly about the two super monkey balls yeah um and really, we came after talking about every single Super Monkey Ball release, of which there are about six or seven or eight or nine or something. Um, of which Darren has played them all from 3DS to DS to uh, GBA, Vita, etc. Engage, indeed. We still came back to saying, well, really, you only need Super Monkey Ball one <laughs> to actually play Super Monkey Ball. But there are things about you know various versions to, to yeah. recommend. But anyway, issue one hundred and ten of the Kane Rinse podcast, uh, we 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 yeah cover the full gamut of, of Monkey Ballness, and uh, yeah, whether there'll ever be any more. That was a bad idea. Playing all Monkey Balls in the space of four weeks was just like. <laughs> What a way to turn yourself away from the series. But luckily, I've still got love for the first one and a little bit of the second one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Something completely different again. Uh, <laughs> this time from James. It's another one minute long track. It is feeling, another one minute long track. But this yeah. is interesting. Why, why have you picked this one? In, in all honesty, I'm going to be honest. <laughs> 
Um, I'd got in my mind when I next came on to Sound of Play, I desperately wanted to find a way to try and put uh, Exile's Street Fighter 4 theme, Indestructible, in. Because (laughs) it's just so iconic. But we do have a rule about licensed music, and one way or another, it may not be a a group or a song that we're familiar with over here, but it is licensed music, so... Um, oh, that's it. Yeah, I'll give you. It's a tricky one that, and and I may have been even though I don't like that song. Um, oh yeah, no, I don't like it, but I think it's it's an interesting piece of video game music. It it was like oh, I was so excited when Super, yeah. when Street Fighter Four came out, and I'm still excited by that game and playing whatever version you know, yeah. Ultra whatever patch it is now. But but the, that there was something about having that. So, yeah, but ultimately, I watch a... the intro more now because it doesn't have that song on it. But I did, was was that not like because um, Dragon's Dogma? We talked about you know whether that was a licensed track and whatever. But uh, they they done some embellishments to it or whatever. So I don't know. Is Indestructible not written for Street Fighter? Was it just it's, a completely um, already it's existing a song? Different version of a track that I believe is already uh, Exiles. Uh, Floor Rider was a on slightly that one. different version. Floor might Rider. have might have you know. It, it, we can have it in future. I'm going to say. I'm going to say we can have it. <laughs> in that uh, case, look forward, folks, to to three ulti- minutes. Of, of that ultimately, <laughs> uh, you know, as as we've as we've long since said, Kane and Rince is ultimately. Uh, it's just I make up the rules, and so <laughs> I can decide. <laughs> this is the this is why I have this thing, so I can have I can be a control freak. I'm going to say it's in, but for now, what the heck is this? <laughs> but but for now, as good fortune would have it, we're recording uh, <laughs> a couple of days after the E3 uh, press conferences, and there was there was a trailer that just came out of nowhere uh, in the Microsoft conference. Um, that as soon as I heard it, I thought, you know what, even if I could get the song that I had in mind into it, I'll happily uh, put that to one side for this. So um, this is a game that, as I say, was in the uh, Microsoft conference and uh, it looks like it's going to be coming out in summer 2015, this very year, um, on Xbox One. And it stood out for so many reasons, this game. Um, It's developed by a a one woman studio called Tiger and Squid um, who uh, well her name is uh, Sharida Halato or Halatoi apologies for pronunciation on that Um, I'm just going by the the sort of written word um, who is a a recent uh, graduate and has started this um, this sort of one woman studio obviously with with other people helping out with, uh, with music as we're about to hear uh, and such like, but um, this game, it looked like a watercolor painting is the only way I could describe it. But because the the protagonist, a young girl, is is blind, um, the impression that's given is that the the watercolors are fading in and out of the picture as as uh, perhaps this young girl's senses uh, kind of try to create this sort of uh, pastiche or this this kind of picture, this vague picture of what the world around her might look like. Um, and I was just taken with not only the visual style, um, seeing Team 17's logo on there was a bit bizarre. They're, they're <laughs> helping with, uh, I, I guess, uh, publishing or part development, etc. Um, and, and the music, um, th- there's no two ways about it. This uh, very considered quiet, uh, piano piece um, playing over the top of uh, of, a, of an already striking trailer just added uh, the the finishing touch. This 
um, to this this trail that just grabbed my attention, a game that I'd never heard of uh, before, and now just desperately want to 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 see and and to play and to 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 understand a bit more about. Um, yeah, um, that that that's kind of all I can say because I I know no more than than anyone else who who may have watched the Microsoft press conference about this. Um, there there is a, a a website for Beyond Eyes is the name of the game. I should probably say that, um, and uh, also a separate website and blog for uh, the developer Tiger and Squid. Um, and yeah, I would encourage anyone who hasn't seen this in the Microsoft press conference to to head over to. Uh, Tiger and Squid's website or, or the, the Beyond Eyes website and uh, a Google search will, will get you there. And uh, yeah, check out the uh, the trailer for this game. I, I don't know what it's called. I'm assuming trailer theme will do at the moment because it's That's music fun. taken from the game. Um, and uh, I know the composer's first name is Marco, but uh, I did try and reach out to... It's a mystery. Uh, the the Beyond Eyes Twitter account, but I'm guessing that they're probably having a pretty busy week this week, given mm, the yeah. uh, coverage they've just had. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, the information about the composer I got from a, a tweet um, a couple of weeks back saying that they were the, that uh, uh, Sharida and Marco were working on a, a new a new track. So um, that's that's literally all the information I have. This just grabbed me, uh, and, and I hope you will see why. Um, So yeah, this is the trailer theme for Beyond Eyes. Did either of you play uh, an Xbox Live indie game some years ago called Blind Girl? No, no, no. There's a game called Blind Girl. Came out, yeah, around five years ago, I'd say, uh, by an indie developer called known as GLPs. Uh, more than that, I don't know, but um, it was an interesting one. I'm not sure it was entirely successful, but mm. it was an interesting one. I'm sure it's still available on Xbox 360 for you know whatever a quid or less. Um, and you control a blind girl, and it's sort of a puzzle game that revolves around echolocation, mm. if anything. But it's also a little bit creepy and a little bit weird, and yeah, it's worth worth a look. Anyway, I wouldn't necessarily mm. recommend it as a great game to play, but mm-hmm. as a as an interesting indie experiment and another game about uh, you know restricted sight. Yeah, that that exists. Mm. Yeah. Uh, in regards to Beyond Eyes, uh, my mm. my job at the moment. Uh, I work for a publisher called Sold Out, and they team up with Team Seventeen. They team up with Team Seventeen with, uh, yeah. by by putting their games into boxes. And um, one of their guys comes into the office every two weeks, and he talks about the progress of you know Team Seventeen's like mm. digital 
stuff. Mm. And beyond, every time he mentions Beyond Eyes, like he's, he's uh, you know, he he starts beaming with uh, like <laughs> some sort of yeah. smugness, like hey, you, you haven't signed this game, but we have. So there's 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 something going on with that game that uh, mm. I'm not entirely sure because you know he can't, he can't say because of you know yeah. business reasons. But NDS. the way he talks about that game is like that game's going to be something special when it mm. comes out. Great! Now you've built up everybody's hopes. <laughs> <laughs> it's only yeah. going to come crashing down now. Yeah. That game's in safe hands with Team Seventeen, and they're 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 amazing. Those guys, and uh, yeah, dealing with them, you know, on a, on a almost daily basis. They're um, yeah, that game couldn't have found a better publisher. All right. You looking mm. for another job? <laughs> <laughs> no. Advertising. Excellent. Um, yeah, so I mentioned earlier that I was uh, thinking about CG intros from the classic era of C- CG intros <laughs> when it was a thing. I'm not saying, you know, they've not all gone the way of the dodo. They're, they do still exist, but I think maybe it was partly me, maybe it was partly the time, the fact that people were, you know, doing this for, uh, you know, they had the tools to do these for the first time to to a degree that actually made them, you know, look really quite spectacular and actually if you look back at the cg of the era even it's weird even you know even the technology of that has aged somewhat um so <clears throat> there are elements about it that that do look of uh of ps1 intros that look uh, you know of their time for sure but in terms of um again i know i realize the irony of this we're going to hear the music but for me it was the the marriage again of visuals and music that made the intro to soul edge special um known as soul blade in the in the west with its uh with its odd bits of censorship the uh the the covering up of sofitia's back oh my god you could almost see a tiny bit of butt crack uh and the fact that they took the nunchucks out because they were they were considered um I don't know what the word is, but you weren't you weren't allowed them basically. So they, you ended up with these weird, twisted bar combat things. Anyway, enough of that. The game was still the game. Um, Soul Edge was uh, converted from Namco's arcade machine, uh, which came out in '95. Arrived on PlayStation in '96, '97, depending on where you were. And this intro, I remember, pretty much blew me away blew lots of people away again it was one like the final fantasy 8 one that i watched over and over and over again um there's a shortened version of this tune on the game but we're going to hear the whole thing which uh, comes from the um the soundtrack uh composed by one benten maru and performed by vocalist Susie kim uh this has this is definitely not a licensed piece of music from elsewhere because the the song is called the edge of soul it is about soul edge and uh what more can i say other than transcending history and the world a tale of souls and swords eternally retold
Yeah, it's another one that just used to be on. Like, yeah, you're talking about having Super Monkey Ball on in the background, mm. just like having having the intro to a game on heavy rotation because it was almost like the anticipation of playing the game was as exciting as actually playing it. Mm. That sort of sense that you're about to embark on something truly majestic. And I think overall, I have to say, like I still, out of habit, probably out of age, um, and I know the attract the idea of the attract mode came out of arcades literally trying to get people over to play them and also when games were left on in shops more so you know you would um now if you go into a game it tends to be like a game of mario kart is running or fifa is running so people are just playing but in the old days you would have screens just running games on a loop so Mm -hmm. of course an attract mode was something that was used to sell stuff basically but also it was they were designed to you know raise the hype levels of the player and and the anticipation stuff and i still leave new games on whether i've downloaded them or or bought them on a disc put them in the console current gen or last gen and i still wait often in vain for anything to happen (laughs) (laughs) sometimes you get a short loop of something sometimes you get nothing sometimes it just goes around the logos again but I can't think of the last time I could be doing something a disservice. I don't know about you, chaps. I can't think of the last time there was an intro to a game or an attract mode to a game that I just wanted to leave on and just watch run over and over again. No, I can't think. Of, out of all the free consoles at the moment, I think Nintendo have the most uh, you know nice sounding. With Mario Kart Eight, you, you know when you boot it up, you have one of the characters say, "You know, welcome to Luigi Time Eight, and then that kind <laughs> of loops into the the amazing soundtrack. And it kind of has an attract mode of them racing around a course and then back yeah. to the main menu. Yeah. I don't think I ever want to leave it on. I just want to play it. Whereas some games, yeah. like you say, you do, you just want to leave the front end on. I'm thinking about, a, yeah, like a, a sequence that tells a story and gets you hyped for it. I mean, yeah, mm. Mario Kart, you know, yeah, it shows them racing and it makes you think, oh, this will be fun. But thinking about, yeah, the Soul Edge intro or, or again, the Soul Calibur intro, which was famously, rather than CG, that one was... Um, I think that was rendered in engine and you could actually you could unlock the ability to kind of remix it and Hmm. um, move elements of it around because i did everything in the first two soul games uh soul edge soul blade and soul caliber i did absolutely everything you could possibly do and the series kind of drifted away from me a bit after that but uh yeah i had such an amazing time james you got any uh, favorite attract modes or intros or anything from recent times that makes you think I'm, you know, completely forgetting an obvious selection. You're, you're setting me up to be that guy again, aren't you? <laughs> the Souls games do this. Um, Demon <laughs> Souls, particularly. Bloodborne uh, does yeah, it as well, yeah, but Demon yeah, okay. Souls is the one that I can think of. Um, Actually, it, yeah. That's the one. If, if I was to think of one, it would be Demon Souls because the, the music's, uh, it's got the bombast, but it, it tells you in, in a way that some trailers try to do, and this was part of it was used in the trailer. Um, or in, in a trailer for it, but it tries to tell you a story that relays a lot of the different mechanics. So you, you actually see the way you're going to be fighting in the game. You see the the, um, yeah. the sort of multiplayer aspect of it and stuff like that. And even though it's all CG, yeah. even though it's all CG and it's not really, I mean, you can tell it's the same creatures, etc. But it, yeah, it's very CG. It's not in engine cutscene or anything like that. You are, of course, absolutely right. And I am making a fool of myself because the one I was doing this with recently was Bloodborne. Yep, I've Bloodborne watched that. In, I've, I've left that on a loop. I've mm. literally sat and watched that and listened to that multiple times. So, yes, it does still happen. But, of course, those games do in, in some ways famously hark back to a different very era much. of Japanese gaming. Very, so very much, it, yeah. So it kind of makes sense, doesn't mm. it? Uh, our final selection, 
And this sound of play comes from uh, one Duncan2501. A new contributor, and thank you. Now, the title screen I remember to this is, is not a title screen, a track mode piece of music, but the title screen to this I remember having a gorgeous piece that we haven't featured yet. And I think it's uh, it's one of those, as I recall, that just sits there looping uh, a day-night cycle with a beautiful, beautiful skyscape. But I could be wrong about that because, like so many people and so many JRPGs, this is a game I bought at the time and still haven't played. To my shame, Xenoblade Chronicles. Duncan says, you could pick pretty much any track from Xenoblade Chronicles, a astounding soundtrack and i'd instantly be able to picture the setting from where it came but an overlooked favorite for me is valak mountain night i assume that's night version or at night uh, a track that's instantly evocative of an uphill struggle through thick snow a journey with great purpose but an uncertain destination so this is by uh, the team known as ace plus uh so the actual uh, ace team of musicians uh, are, are normally made up of Chiko Yamanaka and Tomori Kudo. Uh, but when a third person joins them, Kenji Hiramatsu, they become Ace Plus. <laughs> I like it. It's clever. Yeah. So uh, before we hear from Ace Plus, as you've heard once again, it's not just about what we like. So please do continue to venture over to the forum at canerince.com where you can request your favorite tracks as long as they're not licensed, unless I say it's okay. Um, <laughs> and uh, and other, other interesting pieces and oddities are welcome as well. We, we can be as, as wild and crazy as you like. It, it doesn't necessarily even have to be stuff that you think is, is pleasant on the ear. We'll, we'll consider everything as long as there's a story behind it or something you want to tell us about why we should feature it. Uh, and we will always, we, this is our pledge to you, we will continue to include a selection of, of uh, community requests in every Sound of Play podcast. So uh, it just remains for me, Leon, to thank Darren and James and to hand you over to Xenoblade Chronicles Ace Plus and Snowy Valak Mountain at Night. <laughs> 